Thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. This show is brought to you in partnership with the Witherslack Group, experts in special education and care. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everyone, and rise and shine with the um, Saturday Social with Flora. And we have a fantastic show lined up for you this morning. We are, well, I am super excited because we have Andrew Morrison, um, and I'm going to get him on in just a moment, um, to talk about his new book, The Authentic Leader. So, Andrew, I see that you're on. Can I just check that you are definitely in? I'm definitely in, Flora. I hope <laughs> amazing. You can hear me. Oh, amazing. Welcome, Andrew. And thank you so, so much for coming on on a Saturday morning. Um, uh, so I'm really, really delighted to have you. Um, so to be honest, I'm going to be really honest to begin with. When I had your book come through the post, The Authentic Leader, there's so many leadership books out there. Um as you know, and I thought, oh, I wonder what this one's going to be like, because you, you, you know, you see leadership books. I've read loads of leadership books and a lot of them you read and you think, well, I didn't really take anything from that. And I have to say, and I'm not just saying this because I have you on as a host, you know, as a speaker, I'm saying this because I read your book and I'm now actually going to take your book and take it apart chapter by chapter, because for me, it's actually been a really great book for me as an, uh, a head in a new school now, taking on my second headship, um, to actually reflect, to sort of take stock of where I am and to think about, you know, leadership and authenticity in its purest form. And your book is absolutely fantastic. Um, and I, I, I wasn't expecting it to be, and I don't mean that in a horrible way. I mean that because there are so many leadership books out there and your book absolutely hit the nail on the mark. And I'm so glad I read it and actually had to read it because it's given me so, so much. So thank you, Andrew, but welcome. Pleasure. Well, that's a great start. No, and no, and I I genuinely mean that. So first, let's start by introducing you. Can you give us a little bit about about your background? um, Just just to start us off? Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, I've been a, I've been ahead now. Well, I'm not ahead. I'm not ahead at the moment. I'll come on to that in a second. But yeah, I was ahead. I started out when I was 29. And I knew as a head teacher, that is uh, a school down in London. And uh, I really genuinely had no clue what I was doing. I, I don't know why I kind of stumbled into headship in many ways. I just kind of just ended up there uh, running my own school. And at the time, you know, this was this was just before um God, the, the turn of the millennium. This was 1998. So we didn't have, there was no national college of school leadership at that point. There were no, uh, there was no impact. There was no national, you know, there was no chartered college. The only place I could go to, to learn about any form of leadership was kind of buying those books in sort of airport departure lounge, you know, and there were all these multi-million copy books set in America that when you read them, you know, a bit like the ones you referred to, Flora, you just can't translate those into school. So I, so I really struggled as a, as a young head. And then as I went through my career, I, I um, ended up 
uh, three or four years later running, uh, at the time I didn't realise it, but it was the second largest primary in, in England, um, in East London. We had just over a thousand pupils. So I had to completely change my mindset to how I went about distributed leadership, becoming a head, running a school. And, and it, it stood me in, in good stead. And I was very lucky. We got we got that to, to outstanding. And we had, it was a really multicultural school. You know, we, we had over 50 different languages spoken by the kids in East London. It was a magical place to be. And then I um, decided to move my family to, to the country because I had three young kids at that point, all under five. So me and my wife, we sat down one day and decided we'd move and get out of London. And we moved up to, to Shropshire. So I took a school on in Birmingham in special measures. And... Um, managed to get that to outstanding as well within funnily enough in exactly 1000 days so I wrote, I wrote another book about that that's my first book called the art of standing out where I'd realized that the way to become a really effective leader is is to basically not give two hoots about what other people are telling you about how best to run your school in other words you know the likes of Ofsted and those uh, local authorities to a certain extent um, but uh, you know essentially that was where I was at at that point and then I had a bit of a paradigm moment where I realised that, you know, I was what, 40 at that point, um, 38, something like that. And I'd got to outstanding. Where next? You know, where do you go next? You know, I can't carry on doing this for the next sort of 20 odd years or so. And so um, a lot of the, 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 the themes and ideas around the book started to really emerge at that particular point then. So I... I uh, created a multi-academy trust this was in 2012 so I think we were the first well we were the first um, school within the local authority to become a primary academy and then we then we started to sponsor and our, our USP pretty much almost became taking on schools in special measures and and applying a lot of what I'd learned and put into the into the book in terms of in terms of the model to transforming schools but from kind of the outside in you know so it was very much an approach that wasn't driven by chasing the wrong ace it was all about um social impact social justice all of that kind of stuff that's very hard to measure granted but but it's the stuff that gets me out of bed every day as a leader and did that uh and then left as the ceo a couple of years ago and then set my own company up which it's called Makana Leadership, and I'm now in a really lucky position where I can go into schools um, all over the country and uh, get paid to do stuff that I love doing, talking about stuff that I love doing and trying to continue um, making a difference in schools in terms of the next kind of generation and, and, and cadre of uh, leaders that are coming through. Yeah, I mean, brilliant. So, uh, you know, a really varied background, lots of different schools and obviously going into schools and special measures and bringing them through that journey. And you actually mentioned in your book, you know, that thousand days. I loved it because, oh my gosh, that's so specific. A yeah, it was days. weird. I couldn't believe it. I mean, we were just, just by complete chance, we, we were looking through the calendar. Yeah, it was exactly 1,000 days. I mean, that was the original working title of the book. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I kind of wish we had stuck with it in some ways, but um, no, it was, a, it was a it was an amazing time. And one of the beauties when you're in a in a special measures school, and I've always said this, you know, if you want to go and find some of the best teaching that's going on, and some of the most innovative, um, risky teaching that's really edgy, you know, go and find your local special measures school. And, and I mean one that's on the turn. You know, obviously. Um, you're probably very aware from the book and from my previous book that I've got, I do have issues with Ofsted, but I do think the one thing where they do have a role is identifying those schools that clearly, um, that they need a fresh start. There is something seriously fundamentally wrong with this school. Um, 
So when you go into those schools that are on the cusp and on the turn, you know, they're amazing places in terms of the sheer um, uh, energy and, and excitement that's going on in those schools as, as they're on that kind of upward, you know, upward trend. And, you know, in the first book, I talk about how important it is when you do take on a, a measure school or any school that, that requires improvement is to, you know, you've got to tighten up as a leader. You've got to tighten up. That's absolutely, absolutely crucial. But you only learn to do that when you when you yourself know lots about what good teaching and learning looks like what good assessment looks like what great behavior management looks like so you do need to be pretty expert in that particular domain where where we're less expert as leaders and i'm the first to admit this you know are those more generic skills around how to get the best out of people when it when you know i don't even know how to get the best out of myself most of the time you know when i get up in the morning it's it's hard work you have to you know you put the game face on you've got to go out there you've got to walk into a a toxic environment and 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 be there for everyone all the time and that was the real the real challenge so in the book you know the first book i really wanted to get a sense of 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 how that can be done but of course you realize pretty quickly as a leader that it's it's not about you at all you know if if you think there's any place for things like hubris in in education and, and ego and and charisma um it, it gets you nowhere um it, it's not what gets you that sustainable impact again which is what i really wanted to you know get across in in the, in the new book the authentic leader which you absolutely did and i think that came through loud and clear the fact that it isn't about you you know you are the leader obviously but it's actually about what you do with that team and and we're going to talk about this model that you have um which obviously you talk about throughout the book um, okay. Brilliant. I mean, we, we <laughs> the book is, there's so many sections of the book that we could talk about in an hour and a half, just each section. Mm. Um, <laughs> and we'd be going on all day. Um, but I want to, clear. The diary's clear. Do you know, I would absolutely love to talk to you all day because that this is, this is one of the things why I found this book so interesting for me is obviously starting in a new school. It's a, it's a, it's a much larger school than the one I was head of and I've come in and, you know, there's lots to do. Um, and, but this book has really made me now after my first term reflect on where I am with the vision and thinking about your four part model and how I can use it and adapt it to actually fit the context I'm in, which I want to start with, actually, um, because at the very end of your book, you said something really, really, I think, pertinent for anyone who wants to read your book or anyone not who wants to read your book, who's who's questioning whether or not they should read your book. Because you, if you're listening, you absolutely should read this book, because I'm telling you, I've read loads of leadership books and this book absolutely gets you thinking deeply um, and it gets you to reflect on yourself as a leader, but also on how you are leading your school. So thank you for that, Andrew. But I'm going to start with a quote that you have written in your book at the very end, because I think this is pertinent. You said, it would be the greatest of ironies, the paradox of all paradoxes, if this book seeks to tell you what to do as an authentic leader. No, just make it work for you. And the reason I am starting with that is because that is exactly what this book is. It doesn't tell you what to do. You are giving us this guideline and you are absolutely, the whole premise is you have to adapt it for you because you have to be authentic. So starting with that, obviously authenticity and purpose are key. Can you talk a little bit around why authenticity and purpose are so important? 
I mean, you start. I mean, the the, it's, it, the the quote is a is an interesting one. By the way, it's really weird having your own stuff quoted back to yourself. I mean, that does sound very very lovey, but uh, it's it's nice to hear it. But I think the point about about when I started out as a head, I just didn't think deeply enough about what the job required. I just assumed my job was my job description. You know, my school development plan was my job description. And my job was just to get stuff done, to, 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 to manage a really tight ship and have a great budget, a bit of a surplus. Kids turn up every day, they're happy, and we knock out, you know, the exam results and bang, that's it. But I realised, of course, that the impact that I was getting was just so random. You know, in the book, I talk about the matrix of things where I, I explain that there are some schools that produce no things. There are some schools that produce something. There are some that produce literally everything. And there are other schools that, you know, pr that, that really do focus in on great things. And I think as a leader, there's got to be an absolute mirror in terms of what the impact is that you want to see in your school. And when I say in your school, I'm talking about the entire community that you serve. And if that's a, a multi-academy trust or a federation or a group of schools, it, it's that larger extended family. There's got to be an absolute mirror of your own sense of purpose. And I think one of the problems that we have in education is that we're not very clear sometimes about the business that we're in. And I, and I recognise that can be red rag to a ball because I know that a lot of people think, well, education is not a business. And, and, and it's not. You, you're right. But, the, but the, the simple truth of the matter is that when you're in, particularly when you're in the mat world and you have to realise that every year you've got to you know, post your, your accounts up at company's house and that you're, you're governed by a whole different set of, of metrics and Ofsted at, at that point, you know, become almost the least of your worries when you've got um, all the sort of fiduciary and funding regulation compliance stuff that you've got to do. Purpose just gets lost. And I sometimes think as heads and as leaders, we don't we don't do enough thinking about that. And in, in the book, you know, one of the one of the other quotes that I use a lot that kind of pulls it out is, is this one that, you know, successful school leadership starts and ends with you. You know, so there's always that reminder of accountability here. It starts in terms of who you are, what you believe in and why you do the things you do. But that's not good enough. What we've got to do is change that to it starts and ends with us. You know, what we believe in, why we do the things we do and all of this sort of stuff. So in your own particular school, it's important to always realise that no one is authentic until everyone is authentic. And one of my kind of worries about the book title was that it, it kind of almost implies that it is just about one person, you know, the authentic leader. But it's not. You know, we've got to make sure that everyone in their school uh, or any organisation has an absolute clear sense of, of the business that they're in, why we're doing this, and then relate everything back to all of the actions that we're doing, all of our budget headings, the way that we appraise our staff, the way that we um, evaluate how effective and successful our curriculum areas are. And there's an absolute clear line of sight through to, to impact. And in some ways, you know, I realised as well, um, and I tell this story in the book, when I, when I drove through um, the catchment area of a school that I was in, that, that, that I ran, the one that, you know, I got my, my, my first uh, school down in London, the, the one with a thousand pupils in, in the East End. And I, well, East London, and I, and I drove through the catchment area 20 years almost, 15 years after I was ahead there. And I realised what I'm actually looking at here is my vision. It, it made good. This is it now. This is what 15 years ago I, I kind of painted in my mind what I wanted a local community to look like. Is this really what, what I was thinking of? 
And I think what we don't do in education is, is spend enough time being really clear about our vision and that that in itself is, is the story that pulls people in, that, that if nothing else, what it does is it reassures people that you know what you're talking about. You know, people should be able to read a vision statement and it not be full of, you know, all these nefarious, fancy words that we see sometimes that mean absolutely nothing. You know, you've got to really challenge every single sentence and then ask that question. Well, so what? Why? What does that look like? How does that relate in terms of how we organise our, our curriculum? How does that relate in terms of our budget headings? You know, and I always think you can tell what schools prioritise in terms of what they see as one of their core purposes. And that is to look at their budget, you know look at their budget headings and if, if they really value uh say the arts or, or drama or dance or science or music or digital technology and yet you look at their budget and they're not spending any money on it or they're not prioritizing their school development or they're not prioritizing the way that they um uh grow and develop their teachers professionally then you've got to question that sense of purpose so so my advice always and a lot of the work that i do when i'm coaching aspiring leaders or new heads is I don't let them get out of quadrant one, which is essentially the one that's around purpose. You know, this is the one um, that that answers the question, you know, how do I discover and articulate my core purpose and reason for being in a way that is compelling for all? Now, I would challenge any head teacher, even one that's been, you know, as old as I am and has been in the game as long as I am to actually go back and be able to articulate that and with your governing body and with your board. And, and, it, and it, it is so, so difficult. And then go back and look at that and then look at what it is that you're actually measuring in terms of all the stuff that you're collecting, all the information and the data and the qualitative and the quantitative. And are the two are the two almost aligned? So it, the, the, the model itself almost is a mirror image. You can kind of reflect quadrant one over to quadrant four and it should be quadrant one, but but made good in, in reality. Yeah, no, Absolutely. You, you brought up a couple of things in there, which I'm just going to try and pull apart. So first, when you talk in your book, and you've just you've just mentioned it now, how you drove back through the catchment area um, and, you know, years later. And I, you know, I don't think schools think about that deeply enough about actually what impact are we wanting to make? What is it? What What is our vision long term? Um, because as you say in the book, and as you just said now, it's about impacting a community. Um, and I, I think that really resonated with me um, in the book is, is, you know, you driving back and actually looking at the impact of your vision. I mean, that's powerful. And of course, yeah, the, the, the challenge is that that the, the way that we currently measure our schools, there is no scope or capacity to do that within the current uh, inspection framework. We, we just simply can't do that. You know, I was an inspector myself for about five years when I was also a head teacher, and I, I kind of um, kidded myself that you know I could I could go out and start to to look for evidence of this and of course you can't you just simply cannot and and i think this is one of the issues around around culture i mean we, we might come on to that a little bit later on but um culture is is so important in a school and yet in terms of sending someone in to try and kid themselves that they can spend a few minutes really getting to grips with the culture yes the climate we can get a feel for that but in terms of the the, the way in which the culture drives everything you know is a real a real, real challenge. So, yeah, I wish I'd kept, I, I so wish I'd kept my vision statement um, for my very, very first school so I can go back and see and see what it's like. And this is where, as you know, as a, as a, as a business, you know, and I'm using that in inverted commas, we're, we're unique because, you know, at the end of our 
production line, so to speak. We don't we don't knock out an end product that's easily measurable and quantifiable. You know, we mm-hmm. don't work like that. And you know, we know that as particularly you know, I work almost exclusively in the primary uh, domain. You know that it's really only job probably a third done, half done when when a child leaves you and goes on to year seven. And very rarely do we find out what, what they've turned into when they're 18, let alone when they're 22, 28, 38. But but that's at the point where the, the, the vision statement that you that you are working on really should be should be kicking in. So yeah, it's it's frustrating. But um, I think that's equally what makes the job so rewarding and exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Completely agreed with you on that one. Um, And, you know, as you said, I know you don't, you know, do things for Ofsted and and, and things like that. But actually, another thing that you say in the book, uh, which which really resonated with me was, I'm going to quote you again. I'm sorry, I might do this a couple of times. (laughs) I apologize. I forgive you, I forgive you. So this is quite early on in the book. And you said, be clear about what you have imposed on yourself, what matters to you, make your own guidelines and share them widely and publicly. Because I think throughout, you know, you talk about the fact that to be authentic, you have to be doing the things that matter to you. Um, And, and also what you talked about, about, you know, this, this whole idea of the vision, you know, we talk about visions being lived and breathed and being a part of that culture because it needs to permeate. Um, but what you say about the vision is is really is really, I think, key because it's about actually tying it into everything because everything has the link. And the way you sum it up throughout the book makes it very neat and makes it very clear what the purpose is because everything has to then be tied into that purpose. And you're oh, constantly yeah. questioning. Absolutely. Well, of course, one of the one of the um, issues with vision, and I'm the first to struggle to defend it, really, because you know, simply by virtue of kidding yourself that you've got a beautiful vision, that that's going to in turn then instantly translate your school into an, an overnight success is, you know, complete nonsense. And I wouldn't even begin to think that there's any kind of causal correlation between what you're seeing in a vision statement and outcomes. I mean, we know that that's just simply not necessarily the case. It's very hard to to extrapolate. Um, what what goes on in the school in terms of it's a direct result of the actions that you put into a vision, but but what I do know um, about a vision and the research is is you know really really compelling is that if you don't have a vision, you know we flip flip it around and you're not clear in terms of what it is that you're working towards, then the likelihood of success I think is is considerably less. I mean, yes, there are bound to be some great schools out there that are probably outstanding, doing brilliant things. And maybe maybe there isn't a vision statement. I, I, I genuinely don't know. But I think what's really important is that for those of you that don't lead the school from the top, that is. So, you know, coming in as an uh, ECT or, or an inexperienced teacher, I think one of the key documents for you to be looking at is is this vision statement. Because that is what will summarise, you know, if you're going to be be around for 5, 10, 15 years, you know, you might commit your, your, yourself to that school for that long. And you're going to be thinking to yourself, well, I'm not going to be there for that long. But of course, the kids might be, you know, if you're in an all through all through um, primary, secondary, where a child starts at three and leaves at 18, by the time they leave 15 years later, pretty much, you know, your vision statement that the parents presumably are buying into 
um, if they were inclined to want to read it before they chose that particular school, which I accept is unlikely. But nonetheless, it, it's really important that that, that statement um, helps you because I think what it does is it, you know, it provides the focus for all aspects of organisational life. So for, for a governing body, um, when they're holding a head teacher to account and they're holding themselves to account, it should always be, you know, to what extent, for example, is our school development plan, our, our um, school improvement plan, taking us one step closer to that to that envisioned future that, that we're working towards. And then that then informs everything that we do in terms of our own strategic planning cycle, um, our budget cycles. And it also, I think, helps clarify the, the, the priorities and work of individuals as well in the school, particularly in terms, for example, of... Um, appraisal, performance management, self-evaluation, co- coaching fo- focuses as well. Um, I just I just can't see how, how a school cannot be effective without a really clear and purposefully aligned vision. And I am being really, really quite um, mischievous on this one because, again, as I made the point a few, few minutes ago, just simply having this vision means absolutely nothing unless it leads to... Um, really good outcomes purposeful meaningful outcomes not accidental outcomes um and and i think that's just so important in our in our in our work completely agreed on that point definitely because i mean you go into so many schools where people are so unclear about what the vision is they can't they can't repeat what the vision is they can't explain what the what the vision might be and they can't talk about the values or they don't know what that crux is and you know it is key and i'm at the point right now where i'm building that vision so this is why having just read your book it's absolutely been brilliant because i'm at that point now i've been there six weeks and i've been gathering everyone's views and trying to get everybody's points of view and thinking about what the vision is um as a collective. Um, so it's really been interesting to read the book and to see your process for, for getting to it and, and pulling through. Um, the other thing I really like about your book, so your book was really readable because the other thing about leadership books is they can often be dry. And mm. I'm, I'm sure, you know, because yep. you've read loads of leadership books and thinking about some of the ones that you just think it, it you have to reread and reread to think, actually, what have I just read? Because it, it's so difficult to get through. What I love about your book is the fact that you weave through it. You have these beautiful stories that you weave through, stories of leadership, um, which I don't know if, if you want to talk about, because obviously I want people to go away and read your book as well. So I'm very uh, sort of aware of not giving away too much. But the other thing that you really do really well is throughout the book, you're constantly referring to other research that we can go pick up and read. Um, so throughout it, you've just got all these different things woven throughout that make it a really easy read, but something as well that you can easily go back to throughout your time in a school to pick up and say, you know, what did Andrew say about this and, and what do I need to do? So, yeah, love that. Yeah, and I, I, that was deliberate and, and it's good. To, to hear that you picked up on that which is partly why the book um is a four-part model with the nine nine base plates so, so for those of you that haven't read the book um underpinning the model uh, are these nine base plates that really need to be tightly secure and although the model is is cyclical 
it simply has to be because you know that's how we read a book you know we start from page one and go through to page whatever so i've got to lay them out in a particular sequence so each chapter of the book covers each of the base plates but i was mindful that i didn't want to give the impression that this sort of model is a formulaic input output model where you start one end you know like a sausage factory and out the other end plops a great school i mean that's not what it's intended to be but i think wise and sensible and confident leaders will know that you know, you'll be working across three or four or five or six base plates at any one time. For example, one of one, you know, one of the base plates is, is strategy. But but we know in quadrant three with strategy that unless we we pull other levers, other base plates in, in other quadrants, such as trust, building relationships, um, changing core beliefs, we're going to get nowhere with strategy. And, and likewise, a couple of other base plates on um, capacity building, professional growth and learning. Good leaders, effective leaders know how best to go back and, and bring together certain base plates to, to really um, build capacity across an organisation. And I think um, in the book, yeah, I've tried to write each chapter so that if you just go straight into particular chapters, it works. Although, please don't go to chapter seven on strategy. I mean, I made that right clear in the book that if you've just done what I did when I was 29 30 I'd have just flicked straight to the bit on right what do I need to do how do I write my strategic plan how do I get strategy done but but don't you know you that uh, you must go back and spend a disproportionate amount of time in in quadrant one and I think where where perhaps I got into perhaps better habits than other other heads was by virtue of running an, a, a, a trust where we had a continual flow of schools coming in in special measures or schools that were coming in that were good and, and uh, or better and always successful onboarding of any new school is about always going back to you know the core values what is it that we stand for why do we do this what what's unique about this school when this school joins the trust or the federation or whatever what does it bring what what other values can can we bring to the to the entire organization and then systematically you know go around and make sure that the base plates are secure this time of year is great for that isn't it because this is the one where we get everyone together we, we starting a new kind of school improvement journey in many ways um certainly i'm talking in september and early october so um i wanted the book to be one where yeah if you read it as a whole all the way through it kind of makes sense but equally if you just pluck out a chapter and read it just to remind yourself you know what are the what is the key knowledge that a lead leader needs to know about for for example building trust I mean I don't know about you Flora and, and anybody listening but I've I've no one has ever sat me down I've never been on a course really I've never re read read a book on on how to build trust in necessarily in a in a school yes I mean there's all the fantastic Stephen Covey stuff that we read about you know building trust and the power of trust but can that be translated you know to a wet Tuesday afternoon in January with a leaky roof and no budget and a rundown staff Ofsted breathing down your neck how do you then build trust in a small rural primary school um, it, it's incredibly difficult yeah no and you're absolutely right in the fact that you know it's difficult with some of the leadership books we read to actually then put it into our own context of of a school because so many of these leadership books that we we talk we've read and we might refer to are books that aren't about leadership in schools it's just about leadership usually in business um so again another reason why this book is absolutely crucial is because it is all 
built and based on, you know, your experience in, in schools. Um, I'm going to just stop for just a moment because I need to go and um, go to our advertisers and the people who sponsor our show. But also, I wanted to just read a tweet, um, Andrew, because um, Mark West has just been on here and he said, great conversation going on here. Just gone back to my personal life mission and rewritten one line during the chat. Now need to consider how that could impact on the organizational vision and mission statement. So already this conversation is getting people to rethink. So fantastic. Um, um, here is uh, the advertisement. So Witherslack Group are a leading provider of specialist education and care. They need people like you to help them achieve even more. At Witherslack, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. Witherslack currently have some fantastic career opportunities available to apply for. Check out www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers. Charlie Burley, the teacher's health coach, has a new event called Rewriting Wellbeing. It's a full day dedicated to improving your health as a teacher through looking at your nutrition, movement, mindset, workload, and well-being in school. There are speakers such as Andrew Cowley, Jen Foster, Kimberly Wilson, Simon Bolger, and many, many more. There'll be talks, workshops, and time to network with like-minded colleagues. You'll get to brunch, lunch, and all the refreshments included. It's a nonprofit event with all proceeds going to the amazing education charity Ed Support. This is not one to miss. It's on the 22nd of October at ETC venues, St. Paul's in London. You can search Rewriting Wellbeing on the Eventbrite website to find out more. So if you have just joined us, we are here with Andrew Morish talking about his new book, The Authentic Leader, um, which includes in it the four-part model to lead your school to success. It's all built around this model, which we are going to now talk about. Now, you briefly touched on it um, just before we went to the adverts, um, Andrew. Um, but let's talk about your model in a bit more depth, because it's obviously a four-part four model. Um, and you talked about your base plates. Um, do you want to do you want to talk through in a way because obviously you are the expert on this model. Do you want to talk through sort of how the model can be applied to a school? And I was also going to give you a, a scenario, and I don't know if, if you want to take this, but a new person, a new head, you can take me coming into a new school in September, starting a brand new fresh term. Where do they start? How do they go? And how does your four model, four part model, take place? Over to you. <laughs> okay, no small challenge there then, Flora. Thanks very much indeed. Well, listen, I mean, those those questions there that you've just posed there in terms of being a, a, a new school leader are, are so pertinent to myself, which I think is where I found myself at so many points throughout my career where obviously probably worked in, I don't know, how many schools altogether have I gone into that have been within the trust, probably in the dozens. And each time I've had that very same question, you know, how can I begin to get this school to where I want it to be? And of course, I learned pretty quickly that it's not about going straight in and changing things in terms of teaching and learning necessarily and standards and monitoring and throwing out the curriculum and going and downloading the latest um, new big thing in education and introducing that into your school. It's, it's taking the time to really immerse yourself in uh, the, the four Bs. So the four Bs really were where, where the whole thing started. And I, I alluded to these in my first book, The Art of Standing Out, in regarding um, the, the three Bs. And, and they are very much 
the, so in the first quadrant, it's this sense of belief that staff have to believe. They have to believe in quadrant one in, in themselves. They have to believe in you as a, as a new leader. And most importantly, they have to believe in the organisation in terms of what it stands for and also its own moral purpose and direction. Now, until you've got that in place, you are absolutely kidding yourself as a new head that you'll get anywhere in terms of strategy, school improvement, getting people to follow you and come with you, you know. There's a great quote by a guy called Seth Godin. He's one of these kind of American gurus. He wrote a lovely book called Tribes. Um, it's very thin. It's almost like a very thick pamphlet. But it's a, it's a good read. It's very American, very cheesy. And it probably is one of these books that simply cannot be applied to, to a uh, primary or secondary school but he says this he says in terms of leadership all you have to do is this do what you believe in paint a picture of the future go there people will follow now that's always kind of resonated with me because i just went there as a new head teacher you know i kind of thought that's what you do you know the, these rapid turnaround schools you've got to go in and, and if you don't go there ofsted are going to be rocking up three or four months later and knocking on your door saying what the heck are you doing you haven't moved you know this isn't this isn't rapid enough um so you have to be really brave and confident in your own self abilities and i think that's when it's hard when you're a new young rookie head teacher because you don't have the experience or even the, the sort of confidence to push back on that so i think um getting this sense of of having a real strong sense of self-belief in in what you stand for and why you do the things you do so that first quadrant is is, is believe once you've got that sorted you then move to the second b which is belong now there's there's there is far more out there on what belonging means and, and having a sense of identity written far more eloquently and in greater detail than what I put in the book. And I, I do feel that if someone wanted to throw any criticism at, at the book, I probably didn't give enough justice to that particular element. But I was mindful from my publisher that, you know, there's a word limit that you've got to stick to when you're writing a book. And so stuff had to come out in that particular section, which I do regret. But, but a sense of belonging is so important in a school that, that you feel that people look like you, people behave like you, people think like you, and, and that you've got this real strong sense of identity and that you've got a voice in this organisation and that most importantly, that voice is listened to. Now, I was acutely aware when running a trust, you know, when you've got six, seven, eight, nine schools um, across a, 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 a geographical area, how difficult it must be for those on the very edge of the system to connect with the centre. Now, when you're at the centre, you, your world is such that you believe that everyone has a sense of belonging, but they don't. And and the book talks about how important it is to get this sense of of, of belonging. And it, and it's very difficult. I would challenge anyone who who goes into work feeling fully motivated having a strong sense of self-belief and all of this stuff. But if you don't feel that you belong there, you're not going to be the best version of yourself. You, you, you can't be authentic because your authentic behaviours aren't valued by those around you. One of the things about authenticity is that you don't get to decide whether you're authentic. Others do. You know, so if I said to you, all of those listening now and everybody out there, you know, put your hand up if you think you're authentic. Yeah, everyone does. Of course, of course we do. And, and you may well genuinely be the case. But of course, there's no room for being an authentic jerk. That's not what this is about. And I've worked with some very authentic people, very authentic leaders. But in terms of them translating those ethical behaviours into outcomes that add value, 
No. And I might say to myself, oh, I just don't belong here. You know, I'm just not prepared to put up with this uh, and I'll take a bullet for it and, and I will leave. So this sense of belonging is really important. So the first two quadrants are very much about you, you as an individual, getting that strong sense of belief and then connecting it with others. So the vision piece, you know, you read that that lovely tweet out from Mark earlier about writing down in one line a sense of what a vision and, and your life mission looks like. That actually is relatively easy. The hard part is then how you then move into the second quadrant, which is also called, which is called connect. I'll come on to that one in a second. So we've got the, 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 the two Bs. You then move into quadrant three, which is the bit where you go and do the stuff. This is now where you get on with running and leading a school. This is where you roll your sleeves up and you commit to the cause. So so the quadrant three is, is, is the commit phase. And, and sticking with the belong and the believe um, uh, theme, this is what I call the behave. So believe is quadrant one, belong is quadrant two, behave is quadrant three. So this is where we get the behaviours that we expect of everyone in terms of how, the way we want our leaders to behave because they've got a strong sense of connection with the organisation. They've really bought into the vision. They get the, the mission piece and all of that. When you get those leadership behaviours in those that you work with, that you covet, which are those authentic leadership behaviours coming through. So you've got a strong sense of distributive leadership, transformational leadership, all these other uh, leadership models that are out there, you're seeing very much in, in place. Once you've got those three Bs in in place, and these are the three Bs that I had in, in my first book, but I hadn't realised actually there's a fourth B, and that's become. So all of those three Bs mean nothing unless you as an individual become the person that you want to be and, and, and the person that you aspire to be and that the students and the young people become the learners and the future historians and scientists and ballerinas and artists that you want them to be. And also, of course, your organisation and your local community becomes the, 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 the community that you want it to be. Now, of course, you can't become anything unless you've got that vision, because that vision is articulating and describing what it is that you want to become. And so everything that you measure in your school, through your self-evaluation, through your appraisal, through your head teacher reports, whatever it is you want to report to people, very much talks to the extent to which have we become, how close are we to becoming what it is that we set out to become in the first place. So there are your four quadrants, the four Bs, believe, belong, behave, become and then around those you've got um four c's do you see that I'm, I'm not very intelligent i can't remember things very well so i like to keep things simple so we've got the four c's which are construct connect commit and create and so those four c's help remind me and remember the whole point of a model it's simply a mental model this is it it's a mental model for me to see in my head and help me as a leader even if i was a um you know running a small humanities uh, team in a village primary school and I'm in charge of three or four subjects every every year I'd want to be going through this construct phase so how do I construct my own sense of self and self um, core purpose then we move into the connect phase so that's great that's brilliant what 
fantastic. But now I've got to connect that up with other people. So how do I collaborate with people in order to persuade and empower others to work on this? This is the second conundrum. There are four conundrums, by the way, in the book. These these stem from my research um, on organisational culture 25 years ago when I did my MED, and they stuck with me ever since. And I, and, and I've never managed to um, solve them. And I think they're more powerful than problems because whereas with a problem we tend to find that we can almost extrapolate that and use the the solution to it in a number of different situations you know so if if you're if you've got a problem with your car exhaust pretty much the solution to fixing that in a garage in Plymouth will probably be the same solution that you'd use to a garage in Newcastle schools aren't like that you you just can't replicate solutions to problems even if they're the same problem so i talk in terms of these really deep meaningful conundrums that are really hard to 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 fix so the second quadrant is around connect then we move into the third quadrant remember which is about the behave one where people commit so how do we unlock potential and increase capacity together in order to bring about purposeful change i mean that in itself is a you know a ninety thousand word book trying to get to grips just with that particular question itself and then when we've done all of those we move into to the quadrant four uh, which is the create create phase you know there are no organizations more creative than schools it's just what we do as as teachers we are you know one of the most creative um, individuals in the world even though at times we might not even think that we are particularly creative but we are so how do we show successful impact through a purposeful product that adds value to the entire community and so those four quadrants essentially are are the way that i think teachers and leaders need to, to sort of construct their thinking around how authentic the culture is within their school is. And then to help you with that, Flora, we've got the nine base plates that kind of need to be secured to really then get to your your um, school to the place where you want it to be. I seem to have gone on a lot there. I think everyone's probably gone home by now, but um, no. I'll pause. <laughs> No, no, not at all, because, you know, it gives us a good overview of, of, of how it works. And earlier you mentioned that, you know, leaders cannot be authentic until everyone else is authentic. And if you think about that statement, that's quite a scary statement, because if you think as a leader that actually you can't be authentic until everyone else is authentic, it means that absolutely that whole belong, uh, you know, part of those four Bs, that whole belonging aspect of your organization, your people, that until they have that trust of you and feel like they belong and and they are driven by that vision and purpose that you're driving the school by, then actually they can't be authentic. So that makes absolute sense. When you when you say that as a leader, you can't be authentic until everyone else is authentic. Exactly. And and the challenge there, of course, is is how do you know? I mean, that that really is the question. How do we know that everybody in our school is authentic? And I kind of really grappled, grappled with that for a long, long time, because it does seem a very woolly and nebulous concept. And I think that's why it's never taken off quite rightly as a as a leadership model in its own right. I mean, in, in, in the book, I. I came across a, a, a piece of research that, that was essentially a systematic review of all the studies on leadership models that have been done since 1980. Um, and there were about 700 different papers that were cited that 
looked at what the key features were of um, in terms of you know known leadership models such as collaborative leadership, instructional, transformational, all the ones that were, that, that we know about. Uh, authentic leadership only occurred literally two percent of all of those seven hundred. So literally only a dozen or so, sixteen, seventeen or so articles since nineteen eighty on authentic leadership. And I think the reason for that is that unlike the other models where we can try and aspire and copy the behaviours of other people to become more distributive, to become more collaborative, to become more instructional, to become more delicative, for example. With authentic leadership, of course, the minute we start to copy other people's behaviours, we're no longer authentic. And that's the ultimate irony with authentic leadership, which is why I think it's never really cottoned on as a model. And that's why the title of the book isn't Authentic Leadership because I didn't want to give the impression that this is a model that you can now all go and follow and, and do this, behave like this, and be like this, and hey-ho, you'll be an authentic leader. Absolutely not. That's that's precisely what the book is is not about. But what we do know from, from research is that there are some key common features around what authentic leaders can do and look like. And, and one of the key elements about being authentic is that it leads to sustainable performance beyond expectations. So, again, simply by virtue of being authentic does not make you an authentic leader within the context of this book. It only makes you an authentic leader if there are others around you, likewise, with a similar mindset. And together you are producing great things that are sustainable. So they're not just a one off and that they are beyond expectations. So people say, gosh, I didn't expect that from this school. Wow, that, that's pretty amazing. And you get people driving, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 miles to see what it is that you're doing in that school that's so transformational, other than doing what is on your job description. And that is, yeah, of course, we've got to get our kids to read and write. Yes, they've got to sit tests and exams. Yes, we've got to have a surplus each year and run the budget, blah, 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 all of that. Fantastic, great. And if that's the kind of school that, that you want to run, perfect. And I've got nothing nothing against that. I'm sure there are fantastic schools out there that do that. But for me, I wanted more. You know, I talked earlier about that kind of paradigm moment where I'd got I'd, I'd got two back to back outstandings, and I was just I thought I can't be doing this for the rest of my career. I'm not going to do it. because if I, you know, imagine in my own mind if I got next school and it was good, it's like oh he's lost you know he's lost his way, hasn't he? He's um, you know when I when I took on the school in special measures in the West Midlands, I was I was pulled in to the to the local authority and told by, um, you know, senior people within the local authority that within the first year or so within that school in special measures, our results actually got worse and, and was pulled in and told literally, oh, look, I see the wheels have fallen off. You know, you're not all that you make up to be. And I you know, I had to sit there and, and, and face that and what do you do? Do you do you accept defeat or do you change direction or do you say, well, I don't care if the wheels have fallen off because I've got some better wheels at the side here that I'm going to put on when I'm ready. And if it means we go around with a few flat tyres and just three wheels to start with, I don't care about that. But at some point, we'll put the wheels back on and we'll get this machine going in the right direction. So you've got to be really, really, I think, um, strong willed. But being authentic in itself only really manifests itself in the essence within the book if you can lead it to impact. And that's the real challenge, of course, isn't it, in schools? That's so difficult when you've got the pressures of Ofsted breathing down your neck all the time. And we just exist, don't we, in this complete world of paradoxes. 
you know, so how do you as a head teacher, for example, and you, you'll be in the same situation now, Flora, as going in, you know, as a new head, very mindful that everyone's looking at you now in terms of Ofsted grades, Ofsted judgments, the calls coming in at any time now. How do you, on the one hand, um, tick all those boxes, but at the same time, have a school that, that meets that full and broad curriculum offer that you want, that you covet so much, that's, that's so, so important. And it's almost it almost becomes binary. But I've learned that you can have both. And, and likewise, the other paradox that I'll throw out there as well, as, as an authentic leader, on the one hand, we're saying to you that you've got to have a strong sense of core beliefs and, and you've got to stick with those and, and, and be, be resilient and, and don't be swayed. You know, when people do say the wheels have fallen off, stick to your guns. But at the same time, you know, you're not you're you're not, you're very conscious of your own blind spots, your your own biases and prejudices, and that you're bringing in the views of a really divergent workforce, which is something that's so important. You know, there's a great book by Matthew Said called Rebel Ideas that completely transformed my thinking in terms of how we um, tackle what he calls the problem space. And that we want people that are looking at things in a completely different way. And it's only by having a really divergent, multicultural, diverse workforce that, that we can bring these new, fresh ideas together. And again, that's really challenging as a, as a leader who's so ob obsessed almost with their own um, due north that sometimes we can um, take our eye off the ball in that. So, yeah, lots of challenges there in terms of how, how authenticity manifests itself within our schools. Yeah. And I mean, you've touched on so many, so many different points there. And, you know, we know, we know all too well in schools, the stress of Ofsted and how it can also in itself permeate the culture of a school, which immediately, you know, creates the stressors that we talk about in workload and teacher well-being. Um, and, you know, throughout your book, it is about this, it's, it, of course, it's about authenticity, but it's also about this whole idea of being a brave leader. But you don't talk about it really as brave leadership. This is this is being authentic to you and authentic, you know, as a school. And I think that's a really important difference in your in your book. And one of the things that you also talk about very early in the book, again, sorry, another quote, I'm going to quote you back. But you say, never before have we needed leaders unwavering in their beliefs, armed with a precisely calibrated moral compass set to weather the storms. And I think that is absolutely crucial because what you're talking about in this book is leaders who are being authentic and and to be authentic you have to be driven by your purpose you have to be driven by what you know is your vision and i think what gets in the way in schools obviously we have this culture of offset and all these external pressures and unfortunately leaders allow those pressures to take over and we then lose our way we lose our purpose and this is what's key about your book is is all throughout it. This is you're you know you're talking about at the end as well. You talk about how you you have to create this book and create your own distinctive recipe. I think you refer to because it's about you as a leader doing what you know is right for your school and not listening to those external pressures, which is crucial right now. It sure. is. You're right, and I think I think we've never been in a better place to be honest. And again, in many ways, this was probably why the book came out a little bit quicker than I'd anticipated, simply because of the impact of all this, all the stuff we've been through um, as a result of the pandemic. And we've never, 
I've never been more um, in awe at my colleagues in terms of their ability to to stand right front and center stage at the heart of their communities when you know we've looked at we, we, we all know the situation with with what's gone down with the government and and lack of um, moral purpose and ethics and all the stuff around the Nolan principles and yet school leaders have had to be the face of their community throughout the pandemic when schools were shut um, and I think what it's done is it's made people almost reset to a certain extent and realize that when we go back into a post-pandemic world there are far more important things that, that make our community tick and chime than just going back to the old normal and just playing the Ofsted game and I and I feel very confident that we're going to see a mood shift with Ofsted soon I really do um, for a number of reasons and it's too long we haven't got enough time to, to discuss that now but I think what's so empowering with school leaders is that they've realized particularly when we had what 18 months two years of no quantitative data we've got to find other ways then of, of assessing how effective or how successful our school has been and you know what we found a way those schools found a way of doing it we got rid of for example this ridiculous cliff edge obsession with judging how um, effective or successful you've been as a teacher simply by your ability to eke out an extra 0.75 percent in um, attainment in in sat scores absolute nonsense and so we've we've learned to fall back in love with things like professional growth the extent to which you as a, as a teacher have made a difference in regard to the, the, the values and the vision and the behaviours within, within an organisation. And I think what we've got to do is keep that momentum going now. We mustn't let, let our eye get taken off, off the ball on this. And I um, had the privilege a couple of years ago with one of uh, my colleagues, we set up a, an organisation called Headrest that was in response to me and a couple of my colleagues working with head teachers and seeing the, 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 the struggles that they were having emotionally inside when they were no longer, for example, um, able to be strategic. You know, they were, they were operating entirely in the operational space and they fundamentally found that so difficult. It goes against everything that they know, you know, good futures thinking is all about. And a number of calls that we got to Headrest which is a, a 24-7 free wellbeing service for, for school leaders and head teachers, was around the fact that they'd lost their core purpose. I don't know why I'm doing this anymore. What's this all about? Why, why, why? All the time. It was so, so difficult. But we came through it. And I think the best schools now have used that to really completely almost reset and reframe the way that we go about measuring what makes our schools um, successful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think actually what you've just mentioned, this whole thing of coming out of COVID, this is even more reason why leaders need to be reading your book. So if you're listening, if you just joined us, I'm on with Andrew Morish, the author of The Authentic Leader, um, a four-part model to lead your school to success. And, you know, we have just come through COVID. We've just come through significant change and disruption. And now more than ever, as Andrew said, now more than ever, we need to see a change. And now more than ever, you need to read The Authentic Leader. And, you know, I know reading is hard, especially in leadership. And I know finding time to read is really difficult. But you need to find time to read this book because it will get you to reflect and to think deeply about all these different things that he gets you to question. And 
it will be key to actually resetting your school and rethinking about what that purpose and what that vision is. Um, I'm just going to go through very quickly to back to our advertisers um, and the sponsors of uh, TTR Radio. Um, and if you've just joined us again, I'm on with Andrew Morish talking about his new book, The Authentic Leader. So the Witherslack Group are a leading provider of specialist education and care. They need people just like you to help them achieve even more. At Witherslack, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. Witherslack currently have some fantastic career opportunities available to apply for. Check out www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers. Charlie Burley, the teacher's health coach, has a new event called Rewriting Wellbeing. It's a full day dedicated to improving your health as a teacher through looking at your nutrition, your movement, mindset, workload, and well-being in school. There are speakers such as Andrew Cowley, Jen Foster, Kimberly Wilson, Simon Bolger, and many, many more. There will be talks, workshops, and time to network with like-minded colleagues. You'll get brunch, lunch, and all the refreshments included. It's a non-profit event with all proceeds going to the amazing education charity, Ed Support. This is definitely one not to miss. It's on the 22nd of October at ETC Venues, St. Paul's in London. You can search Rewriting Wellbeing on the Eventbrite website to find out more. So if you've just joined us again, I'm on with Andrew Morish talking about his new book, The Authentic Leader. Now we have gone through lots of different points, Andrew. Um, and as I said, I could talk about this all day with you and I actually, I would love to. We've only got 30 minutes left though. And I there's so many things I wanted to, to talk about, but we're only going to be able to talk about a few more. So I want to go back to vision and this idea of the mission statement, because obviously, as you say, you can't just go to the strategy section of the book and think that you can start from there. It all has to start from your purpose, your vision. Um, so what would you say to any leaders now who are rethinking their vision or, as we've talked about coming out of COVID, wanting to reset their school or reignite um, their their vision statement or think about what their real purpose as a school is. Um, what would you say to leaders who are thinking of doing that? How do we start? What what do we do to get everyone to be a part of this vision? Well, I think I think to start with the context that we're in, the points that we just made earlier about coming out of a post-COVID world has made a lot of us rethink our mission, which essentially is the why. So we've got to be clear about about this. And I think um, one of the problems that we've got in education and indeed across the sector, by the way, so if we go into the to the to the world of commerce and business and all these other books, there's there is a surprising um, mismatch in terms of our own understanding about what we mean by mission and what we mean by vision. And I think what's important as a starting point in your schools and with your governing bodies is to be absolutely clear what mission and vision are and and what they're not and the same goes with your values with your beliefs and so on so i think we've got to as, as a profession get some kind of better understanding of what of what that is and so in terms of the mission it very much is your it is your why so why are we setting out on this journey in the first place now, whether or not you do that before your vision or not is neither here nor there. I mean, we, we've got books by, you know, Simon Sinek, obviously, start start with why. And he's absolutely right in that sense. And I understand where he's coming from, that people um, don't necessarily buy into what it is 
that you're going to do, but they buy into why you do it. But I do disagree with that to the extent that you do also need to know what it is that you're going to do um, before I decide to get on board with you. So, for example, one nice sort of analogy is is sort of sailing off into the sunset. So if you can imagine that you are trying to get people to come with you almost to emigrate or to to move to a different um, country, you know, going back to the kind of founding fathers that went across to America for the first time, you've got to describe what the journey looks like in terms of the destination because I ain't getting on that boat and I'm not coming with you on that journey. It doesn't matter how good the why is. I need you to convince me that where I'm going to is, is, is worth my time, worth me committing to it. And it also shows me that you're not a chancer or a fly by night or a charlatan. You know, you know what you're doing. Now, remember me as a 29 year old head teacher? I, I probably didn't do a very good job of that because I didn't have the breadth of knowledge and experience to be able to articulate necessarily well enough what my um, future state looked like in terms of the school that I wanted to, to create. So you've got to start with the what, if that's important to you. And you know full well, folks, that if you go for an interview, you're almost likely to be asked that question to describe your your vision. But you've got to literally close your eyes and describe what it looks like to be walking around the school that you've created and the local community in terms of what it feels like. to be there again going back to the great book by Stephen Covey the seven habits of highly um, effective people he talks about the fact that you've got to create everything twice you know once in your mind's eye and then once in reality and that's really important that, that that you can do that now in terms of your mission you've then got to say to people this is why we need to go there these, these are the reasons why and a lot of schools say you know in terms of why well it's it you know Ofsted say so or it's it's in our job description or um, if we don't we don't get paid or etc cetera, etc cetera. and that's I, I get that to a certain extent but your your mission has got to convince people why they need to come with you on that particular journey now yes a lot of that may well come down to charisma uh, as as a as a head teacher but it doesn't because ultimately it's your ability to be a really great storyteller and this is something that i think as heads has got to be our number one job and certainly i was mindful of this as a ceo that your job is is to bring the vision and the mission to life and to go and tell really, really great stories and, and tell that narrative, bang the drum, blow the trumpet, because if you don't, you know, nobody else will. And you've got to do it in such a way that, that it connects with other people. Again, just going back to Sinek, he's the ultimate marketing specialist. And he he's very open in the book that if you are going to get people to come with you on any journey in terms of um, developing an organization, it all comes down to just great marketing. He, I, I tell you. The story in the book about the fact that someone once told me that um if you're trying to um sell bacon you you sell the sizzle you know that that's what people will come for you know you've got to learn to sell the sizzle but that just comes across sometimes as being shallow and vacuous the way you get around that is that you have a really compelling vision statement as, as to what the future looks like and i think that's really important when you're going certainly going into a special measure school people need to be reassured that hang on for years, people have said that these kids around here can't do that. No, you can't do that with our kids. No, not around this community. No, you know, and you get that sucking of the teeth, sucking in the breath, 
oh, you can't do that around here. Just have a look at our kids. Well, actually, you can. And I'm going to describe it to you now and show you what it looks like. And I'm going to even tell you what the results are going to be when these kids get to where they need to be in six, seven, eight years time. And this is why we're doing it, you know. And I often find that mission very much comes from your own core purpose. So it's what it's what we call crucible moments. You know, in our life as human beings, we have evolved as um, evolving authentics. There's a whole section in the book that, that takes us through that, how we've been influenced and shaped by um the people that we have worked with you know you you as a leader as we speak are shaping people's lives and people's existence you know right the way through um from um a very young child right the way through to adult we're continually changing our changing our beliefs and so what's so what's absolutely crucial in in the in the most successful schools is that is that 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 ever evolving mission sorry ever evolving purpose you then do something special with it. And we're so lucky in teaching because we can go into a school and bring that real sense of purpose. You know, let's face it, no one becomes a teacher because they love marking or they love ticking boxes or they love filing stuff or putting stuff up on walls or using staple guns. We don't we don't become teachers for that reason. We come we become teachers because something's happened in our lives and we are so passionate we want to go and change the world. We're obsessed with social justice. And that's why this vision that I'm describing is so important because if we don't do it, think of what's going to happen. So it's more and more or less about, you know, what, what the benefits are. But let's flip it and just think about what these kids would lose out on if we didn't go and do this. You know, Michael Fullan talks a lot about, um, you know, moral purpose. And, and he's so, so right. Um, I, I prefer in the book, by the way, not to use the word mission because I think it frightens people off. In some senses, so so I I talk about your nobler motives, and it's got to be hooked up with motivation. You know, th there's no coincidence that at the root of the word mo motivation comes the word motion. You, you you've got to get off your backside to be motivated. You've got to be prepared to go out and start a movement, and 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 get on with stuff. You know, that's so so important. So yeah, I think mission and vision. We don't spend enough time in schools. We're probably slightly scared because we don't precisely know what they mean and we don't know that our mission actually is already there you've got it inside you you as a leader is itching to come out you know don't please please kid yourselves that you can go on a course that will help you find your mission or go on a course to help you find your purpose and i make that clear in the book that if you're picking this up as a self-help book folks it ain't the right book this isn't going to help you discover you know that, that damascus white light moment you've got to find that yourself and there are better books out there that will help you do that but once you've found that, channel that then in through all of your energies. And, and, and we're in such a unique you know, position being able to do that. And I talk in the book about the thing called Ikigai, which, which is much maligned, I have to say. I mean, it's been something that's been kind of misinterpreted over the years. But Ikigai is very much is a Japanese, an ancient Japanese concept about um, your reason for being. And that there are a number of key um, elements ab about this that, allows you to have that real sense of purpose and there are very few jobs where we get that and, and teaching is one of them so we're in such a unique position we've got a great canvas to work with we've got some of the most talented creative individuals in the world we're going to school every day working with kids who are the most funniest and amazing you know if, if you want to talk about raw materials this is what we've got we've got to do a better job 
of articulating what it is that we want to do with this and then knowing when we've got there and that we then celebrate and, we, and, and it's, it's against that that we judge ourselves in terms of whether we are a success or not. Brilliant. Sorry, I'm furiously writing down as you're talking. I'm taking so many notes. Um, oh, this, this is brilliant. And I am so aware that we have less than 20 minutes left to talk. And there's so many questions I have for you. I know there's one question that actually I've been asked a lot recently. And you, you've kind of touched on it, but I just want to just really clarify, clarify it because I know it's something that people have been asking um, and something that actually I don't always have the answer for because you talk in your book about, you know, head leaders being able to give that TED talk almost of, you know, about your vision without any PowerPoint, just being able to stand up and talk you know, from the heart, genuinely about wh why, why we do this, what our purpose is, and selling that vision. So as leaders, we come in with, with a very clear vision normally of, of what we want our school to look like. How do we get people? So how do we get people to be a part of that vision, but also to get their their visions to tie into our vision? If that makes sense. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, that's that's the whole quadrant two that's that's the connect phase within the book and i and yeah. i think that's that's where those generic leadership skills come into play to a certain extent you know and these are the things that perhaps we've never really been been taught so you know you can't articulate a good vision unless you've got expertise about what as i said earlier great teaching and learning looks like what great behavior management looks like what great assessment looks like within your context you know don't go and necessarily think that because you've seen it in a school down the road you're going to then just completely just place that into your school you've got to make it work within your own environment and context so um yes that's really important so you need really good domain specific knowledge and expertise and one of the great things that we've got in the profession now that we didn't have back in my day were things like you know the national college when it first came out and um the charter college and all the networks and research schools and uh research ed all of these um teach meets and stuff like all the brilliant stuff you're doing here um with your radio shows that, that gets people sharing best practice you know mindful that yep just because it works well where you are it doesn't necessarily mean it will work in mine it might work in mine if I connect it up well and I and I market it well and the conditions for growth are there, in other words, the culture. But um, quadrant two, I think, is probably the hardest of all the quadrants it, because it's that awkward bridging one between having all that great vision, having that great um, mission, having a real strong sense of purpose, being good to go, but then how the heck do I now connect that up? You know, do I send an email out to everyone? Do I laminate it and send it out to everyone? Do I get everyone into the hall and just death by PowerPoint and then expect everyone to skip out and, and go out and, and do it? Well, you know, of, of course you don't, you know, and I tell this story rather flippantly, you know, of Martin Luther King Jr. when he sort of stood up and said to everyone, you know, I, I have a dream. He didn't stand up and say, you know, I have a strategic plan and here it is. And it's like 340 pages long and I'm going to take you through it one at one page at a time, which is what we tend to do, you know, on day one when we get everyone back in after the summer holiday and we share the new school improvement plan and the new priorities and all that sort of stuff. That's not going to get anyone 
um, connected. So, uh, um, and Martin Luther King was very aware that behind him, these these are my strategists. I'm not a great I'm not great at that. I I will come up with with the vision and the dream and the drive and the purpose. There are better people around me that will go and, and make it happen. And that's important in schools. You know, I'm, I know full well that, you know, I often would not be the person that would necessarily go and be the starter finisher. You know, I, I'd have great, well, no, I'd be the starter, sorry, but I'd have people around me who are far better at going out and, and connecting up with others. So this is where a good distributed leadership model is crucial. You know, you've got to have a really great leadership team who can go out and do your bidding, you know, almost as missionaries, you know, you're going to go out you know, to bring the word mission in, spread the word and connect up by getting people to, to trust, to, to, to be sufficiently motivated and in terms of relationships. And I think if I can just leave listeners with one simple element that, 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 that is so important, it, it is all down to relationships in schools. That, that is it. That, that's the be all and end all when it comes to underpinning what great culture looks like and how you connect your fantastic vision and mission with with other people. And of course, in schools, when we use the word relationships, I'm not talking about the fact that you've got to like everyone and get on well with everyone and go for a pint and go around their house and stuff like that. No, rather than relationships, what we should think about is how we how we relate with other people, our, our relating skills. And we need to be taught how to do that. For example, just, you know, simply giving feedback to somebody. If you don't have a trusting relationship with a colleague, it doesn't matter how good your intentions are at giving feedback if they don't trust your motives or the relationship professionally isn't there it won't land in the way that you wanted it to do so you've got to work on this in your schools that should be in your school improvement plan for example but it isn't you know we our school improvement plan just tends to be the template that the local authority or, or the trust give you that's around you know raising standards in reading writing maths blah 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 i know that i'm going to do that that's in my job description that's what a school does so i don't need that in my strategic plan this year i'm going to focus on strategies that are going to build better relationships strategies that are going to build trust and get particular groups of people motivated and i'll do that perhaps through the growth based base plate through um, a better more nuanced appraisal um, policy that's linked to our vision values and beliefs so that 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 connect to uh, sorry quadrant two where you connect up as important as it starts with you you've got to surround yourself with like-minded others I mean, there's a great book called uh, by Steve Radcliffe. If you haven't read it, go and buy it. It's, it's superb. It's called Leadership, Plain and Simple. And he says on the front cover that anyone can be a leader, right? This book shows you how. And he says that um, the art of leadership or to get anything done in a school is just simply bringing like-minded people together and then letting them loose. Let, letting them get up to something. You know, go and be a bit mischievous. Go and get up to something. Now, as long as in your school, you're confident that your staff know how to behave because you've set clear boundaries in terms of the values and beliefs, you can funnel that right the way through and trust them to go away and do something that's within the margins of error. You know, trust with your staff isn't about trusting that you'll get they'll get the decision right all the time. No nonsense. You're trusting your staff that if you get it wrong, it won't be too wrong, that it's going to be problematic for me. So, so you funnel people in. And that you give people that margin of error. And ultimately, that's what sets culture. 
because in some schools that margin of error is very tight and restrictive and you really can't go and wait do much at all in other schools that margin of error is far greater so you've got more autonomy you've got more agency and all of those things you know sir ken robinson described cultures so so beautifully and, and he said it's simply the giving out of permissions so to bring full circle to your um question here floor about how do you connect with people you connect with people by giving out permissions permission to innovate permission to take risks p permission to go and have a really messy loud noisy classroom because i don't you know i don't mind when i come in you know i know that learning is messy blah 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 permission to go and try something new and that if it goes wrong there will be no recriminations you know this is what we mean by you know psychological safety we need to create that within our within our schools so the giving out of permissions and allowing people to have that sense of autonomy and agency is so important and i work with a lot of leaders you know i do some work on the mpqs and I'm working with um, SLs, with senior leaders, and they've got fantastic visions, really great mission. Really, they're really, they're good to go. They're desperate to go. But of course, because they have very, very limited um, autonomy in their schools, they're literally tethered to their class all day long. And I'm talking mainly primary here. They get no, they get no chance to go out and practice it and, and, and take risks and get things wrong. You know, and here's the really important bit about being authentic. You will never be the authentic version first time round. You know, you think of that very first authentic um, painting uh, by Lowry, for example. I don't know, just pluck one out of the air. Lowry does a painting and he shows it to someone for the first time and they go, well, that's a bit rubbish. You know, I don't like those stick people. You need to work on them a bit, don't you? So he takes that on board. Now, he might change that and go, well, actually, they're right. I'm going to try and do them a little bit fuller. But he says, no, no, this is me. So he does another one and puts it out there and people go, oh, I see you're still doing them stupid stick people. But fair enough out comes the third fourth fifth painting and people start to realize actually yeah, that's good stuff i reckon oh that's a that's that bloke that's that lowry bloke isn't it and then it becomes it becomes authentic you know the very first um apple phone the very first eccles cake the very first set of adidas trainers no one had seen them before so nothing is authentic the first time you have to lay it down and lay it down to be consistent and over a period of time you as a leader your authenticity will emerge, but you've got to be prepared to fail and get it wrong. So it's this whole strand of imperfect leadership. You know, Steve Mumby's book, superb. Go and read that one. You know, don't kid yourself that you are the complete leader. And in some ways, I, I guess if, if there was a, a subhead into the book, The Authentic Leader, it, you know, it would be a, a guide to imperfect leadership. Because I think that's what fundamentally makes us human. We are flawed at making judgments. We're not very good at getting things right all the time, but we kid ourselves that we have to and we go home and beat ourselves up because that's the only metric that we use. But if we went home and evaluated how effective we've been against our own authentic proxies, I think we'd sleep far better at night. Absolutely. And I think it's about going back to that question that you pose at the very beginning of your book, which is, am I genuine, worthy of trust, reliable and believable? And yeah. always asking yourself that. Um, oh, there's so much to talk about. And we now only have less than 10 minutes. And you've, you've touched briefly on it. We have talked about it because this is all about all about culture. This is what we are ultimately 
wanting to create in our school is a culture that as as you even mentioned in the book it's a culture when you walk in you feel it. it it you can feel the culture you can feel that ethos and one of the things that you say sorry i'm quoting you again change the beliefs and you change the culture change the culture and you win the game and that for me again was another key pertinent quote and i'm gonna i want us to end on this we've got eight minutes <laughs> Do you want to talk just in in five minutes about just really quickly, you know, change the beliefs and you change the culture, change your culture and you win the game. That that's key. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that's that's your job as a leader going into any any school um, that requires um, a change of emphasis, a change of direction. And I think I think what's important is is to understand the, the, the kind of farming analogy that I use in the book also, where, you know, if you ask a farmer what's his legacy, it's not about the yield or the crops. It's the soil. The soil is the most important thing, you know, and if you get that soil right, you pretty much know that within that organization, things will grow and the right things will grow because you might have a, a particular soil type. But there are some plants that, that are growing in a field down the road that you pop into your field they won't grow so so don't grow them don't you know that's you know that's not for you to deal with your particular soil your culture in your school the growing conditions in your school that you've that you've worked really hard to to get right are are the only thing that matters to you as a school and the way that we we change culture is that we change beliefs fundamentally beliefs and now you know i used to think that it was values that was the game changer and whilst values are really really important and i wouldn't suggest for one minute that schools don't have them they really are crucial we know from research for example the stuff from jim collins and good to great and built to last that all of the organizations that have been sustainable over the years and have gone through really really bad patches and i'm talking about recessions and all the you know even wars have got through it because of a very strong moral compass in, in terms of their values. But we know that you mustn't change values. So I've learned that when I go into a school, I can't even kid to, to, to think myself that I can change the values of everybody in that school and bring them all together. And even if I did, you know, I'd have, you know, a number of schools in the, in the trust, all with different values. So how do you bring all that together? It's really tough. But what we can do is change people's beliefs. And if you change people's beliefs over a period of time, those beliefs become validated by your results. And that's that's the point. I mean, there's a great piece of research by Shine who who, who states exactly that, that the job of a new leader when they come into any organization is to establish a new set of beliefs, get rid of all the limiting beliefs. You know, oh, we can't do that around here. If you take a look at our kids, if you looked at our catchment area, have you seen our budget? Have you seen the teachers down in, in that department? We'll never get there. Get rid of those limiting beliefs. Bring in the empowering beliefs through through this intrinsic motivation. And that people do stuff because not because, you know, they have to, but because they want to change the mindset, change these beliefs. And then at the end of the period, whatever that is, you get great results. You, you start to see um, change and people then validate those beliefs to say, oh, well, actually, yeah, I didn't expect that. You know, th this is this is good stuff. I'm now going to, you know, articulate those beliefs, habitualize them. They, they become the norm. And you then say to those leaders, now your job now is to teach new members of the group those beliefs when they come in. And then that, you know, they, they, they then pass that on. So over, you know, the period of three, four, five years, you've done your job. You stand back and those beliefs that you introduced 
to start with and you, that you connected with everybody and that they were validated by everybody because they, they bought into them, you then spread that throughout. And so in terms of uh, um, culture, yeah, I talk about a thing called uh, COCO to help me remember it, you know, COCO, which is the components of a culture of authenticity. And I think, you know, as with COCO, it helps helps me remind myself that we all take our cocoa in different ways. There are a number of different blends, but we know what authentic cocoa looks like and isn't. Um, but it's although it's authentic, it's 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 all very different. We all have our own different blends. It, just because I put marshmallows in mine, or you might use semi-skim milk, and I use full fat, it doesn't mean it's not cocoa. It's just a different a different blend, and no cocoa is better than the other. So in the book, um, what I try and identify are what are these core components? And if they are driven by beliefs, which is quadrant one, your core purpose, you can then change the culture. And if you change the culture, that's what changes the game. Absolutely. Totally convinced with that. And I'll argue till I'm blue in the face that the only way that you will transform a school is by transforming the culture. Absolutely. I think that is an absolutely brilliant way to end this show today. I mean, I can't believe how quickly this time has gone. And there were so many. Gosh. <laughs> oh, goodness. I had so many questions to ask you, and I've only got through about four of them. So, <laughs> so oh, I, we could have talked all day. And honestly, you know, anyone who has a uh, yearning to read another book right now, one that actually will really get you transforming the school and really get you to think deeply about the culture of your school and the the true and meaningful ways of changing your school, you need to read The Authentic Leader by Andrew Morish. And I'm actually going to take this book now, Andrew, and um, read it with my SLT team because I think they need to start thinking. We need to think deeply about all of these key questions as well at the end of each of your sections. Um, yeah. But we're, yeah. No, I was just thinking, I mean, where, where a, a number of schools that I work with at the moment are finding it quite useful is, is very much, you know, through, through structuring kind of coaching conversations. You know, this is this is a systematic approach to getting things done in many, many ways. But um, you, you're absolutely right. I think I think schools that really um, commit to culture are those that deliberately go and do it from purpose and on purpose. You know, we don't do enough of purposeful development of our of our culture so yeah if you're going to go away and do some stuff with your with your leaders on that absolutely perfect good luck and to everybody else out there yeah absolutely to everyone thank you all so much for listening thank you a huge huge thank you to andrew for coming on the show today to talk about the authentic leader and to just talk about leadership um it's been brilliant having you andrew and i cannot thank you so much for being on our show this morning my pleasure good luck and uh have a great weekend everyone it's been lovely thank you Have a wonderful weekend, everyone. Thank you to Lucy um, adminning the show this morning. Thank you so, so much. And again, make sure you listen to all the Talk Teachers radio shows coming up today and the rest of the week. Follow us on at TTR Radio 2022. And thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend. And again, a massive thank you to Andrew. Um, Go out there and read The Authentic Leader genuinely a terrific book to get you to start really thinking about your purpose, thinking about your vision and how to to move it forward. Thank you so much, Andrew. Take care. Bye, all. Bye, everyone. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. 
We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.